Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Herd Tell. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay. We talk about it all the time because that's what's on everybody's mind. Let's talk some more economy. We got another of our great Young Voices uh, contributors, but he's even fancier than that. He's a fellow. Uh, he's also gone to Yale, some other impressive places. A lot of writing out there. Sean Michael Pigeon joins Hertel's show. Welcome, sir. Glad to have you on the program today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thrilled to have you. Okay, we got to keep talking about this economy thing because it's one of those things where it's affecting everybody and everybody's talking about it, but I'm not sure everybody's talking you know, we in church, we'd say, I'm not sure everybody's on the same song sheet here about what we're singing about when it comes to the economy. You've been writing about it. You got a piece out in town hall. Let's start big picture, though. What is is it the inflation? Is it the debate over recession? I know this stuff all kinds of goes together, but pull one thread out of this ball of yarn for us just to get us started. What is it about the economy that people just can't get their heads around right now, do you think? Yeah, I mean, thank you for having me on the show. I, mean, I really appreciate um, you having me on. So I'm excited to talk about this really important issue. I, I think that when we look at where the Biden administration and really where a lot of people in Congress's heads are at is they're they're focused on like larger issues, what they would call like you know existential issues, whether it's climate change or whether it's um, our, our crumbling infrastructure or however they want to frame the issue. But the administration is just not prioritizing consumer welfare. They're not prioritizing the kinds of like nuts and bolts issues that when a person goes to the grocery store and meat is up by you know 20% or 30% or when uh, basic staple items like gas and diesel are, are rising, th- these kinds of issues seem to be put to the back burner on a lot of just the administration's um, priority list. And I think that we see that in the way in which they're tackling whether the Inflation Reduction Act that was recently passed or even the the kinds of things that was put into Build Back Better, even though it got killed. And now we've talked about it before on this program. You know, we have some foundational principles here. One is the president always gets too much credit and too much blame when it comes to the economy. That's just part of the gig when you're in the chair. So let's parse that out a little bit. You talked about it in your article at Town Hall. We're going to link to it as well. What is and isn't the president's fault here? Because we understand things like gas is a lagging indicator, but you can also do things to affect that. We understand like when the inflation numbers come out, those are lagging because those are actually the inflation numbers for the last quarter or the last month, depending on your metric. So that's lagging. Break it down for us, though. What is and isn't the president's fault here? If we're going to lay blame at the White House, we need to understand the environment, right? For sure. The, the president almost always gets too much credit and almost always too much blame, as you say. On When it comes to gas prices, this is one of the things that I think actually can be pretty squarely laid at the feet of President Biden. Um, in 2019, he was asked about how he would tackle 
um, the fossil fuel industry when he was still a candidate. And in 2022, he was also asked about these questions. And he repeatedly talked about how he was going to go to war with the fossil fuel industry. And he even quotes that he would end fossil fuels, which I, I think we all, when we heard that thought that that was sort of a metaphorical um, argument. But in practice, he's explicitly gone after these industries with a, a very strong um, pursuit, both by ending the Keystone XL pipeline, by refusing to allow new permitting for drilling. And so we've seen gas prices go from 225 a gallon, which is what it was at when he took over, um, now to over 450 and now back to under $4, which is good. There's been a lot of pr uh, productive um, work on that end by um, allowing the strategic oil reserve to be sort of um, dwindled down. But the general, the general, I think, gist of the problem is that the Biden administration has taken strong action directly against the fossil fuel industry, which has led to lower investment and higher prices. I think this is one of the few issues that can be weighed pretty squarely at the at the feet of the administration. Yeah, this is that lagging indicator we talk about with gas prices, because if we go back, you can't run for president and say, we're going to shut down the fossil fuel industry. And people are like, well, that's not his fault. Well, no, it is. Here's why. Because when you tell a whole industry something like that, and then you get elected president, they're going to do long-term strategic planning based off that, whether they have a friendly administration or a hostile administration. So they start scaling back. They start planning for things like that. And then that starts indicating later and you get that lagging indicator. That's how that sort of thing works, right? So the words do matter, even if it shows up a little bit later, right? Of course. I mean, I know that I write for a place called Young Voices, but I, I am old enough to remember when the Trump administration was around and they said that like the president's words matter. Right. And that the the engagement and the bellicose rhetoric actually does matter and people respond to it. But we can talk about that with the Biden administration, too, on economic matters. Like when we see the administration saying we are not going to allow new permitting and then they don't allow any new permitting. It's not a surprise to see Exxon and Mobil and a lot of these places pull back their investment in American industry. Like this is not this is a this is not unforeseen. The Keystone XL pipeline got killed um, in the first month of the Biden administration taking over the Oval Office, and there were many conservative commentators, many moderate commentators, saying that this would lead to an increase in energy prices. And lo and behold, it's happened. Talk about for a second though, too. We've we've discussed it before, but let's get your perspective on it. People harp on gas prices and the president's focused on it, which he should because I get it because that's a political hot button because that's the one that really hits people. And it's just one of the it's one of the few things economic wise that's really visible all the time. Gas prices have such a tremendous effect on the rest of the economy, though. Talk about that, because, you know, we've got a little bit of an education for two years about supply chains, but I'm afraid we're going to forget what we learned about that is like this stuff has to ship. Ships run off diesel. Trucks run off of diesel you know, gas gets you from point A to B, the economy really is still fueled off of fuel. And that's why it's such an important indicator when we talk about economics. I'm so glad you brought up the difference between unleaded and diesel, which is probably something that only wonks are really interested in, in making that transportation kind of manager by trade. So, you know, I'm a little, I'm used well, to but, doing that number. No, no, but it's, it, it's so important because when people talk about gas prices, they're almost always like colloquially talking about, well, what do I pay at the pump? How much is it costing me to fill up my car? Um, it is true that most of the trucking industry runs on diesel fuel, which is typically more expensive than gasoline prices if you go to a local gas station. Um, almost all of our shipping from China to the America, but also um, remember when the when the ship was stuck in the Suez Canal, right? Like that, like that is that's a big tanker. It's a big ship that's running on diesel. Um, those kinds of prices are 
even small reductions or small increases are going to have huge cascading effects throughout the economy because when 60% of all of our um, things that come to your table are driven on a truck, that means that you know even even a 2% increase in that kind of trucking cost is going to create a, a direct correlation to a 2% increase in what it takes to to put food on the table. So it's very true. D diesel is one of the most important commodities right now probably in the American supply chain. And I do want to give some 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 we talked about how the Biden administration is not solely at fault. The Putin's invasion of Ukraine has created massive supply chain disruptions. There are real problems with uh, the way in which China has had full lockdowns, which has created supply chain issues, which has created you know cascading effects that has increased prices. It is true; it's not in the entirety. The the blame should not be entirely laid at the Biden administration's fault. One of the things, though, that I think we should be careful about is that things that are very complicated require a certain amount of certainty which is why when the when the president comes forth and increases uncertainty by attacking the fossil fuel industry and increases uncertainty by raising taxes and increases uncertainty by increasing regulation this will mean that we are less likely to be stable in times where geopolitics is in a state of flux, right? It's not just that we have to respond to the good times. We also have to be prepared to be anti-fragile a little bit when the bad times hit. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Sean Michael Pigeon joining us. I'm glad you brought that up because I, I ask this of our guests a lot, whether it's economics or the law or for, especially foreign policy. This is something we just don't discuss. There's a little bit of built in chaos into our system of government because we change con congressional elections every two years, Senate every six years, presidential elections every four years. These kind of things like econ the economy and economic policy and foreign policy, ideally you want to have consistency and coherency. Part of our system is just built that we're not going to get that because we change over our government so much. So how do we balance those two things? Because we need consistent economic policy, but we also understand there's a political side to this. We always want to talk about those two things like they're in the vacuum, but they really do go together, don't they? They really do go together. And I think that the way in which we should prioritize that is by electing candidates that are explicitly not going to rock the boat on major issues. I think that it's some, in some ways incumbent on the American people to understand that the supply chain is quite fragile and that there's a lot of moving parts and that to get, you know, shoes from China to San Francisco or to Los Angeles and then onto a truck and then to drive it to Minnesota is a very difficult process. And attacking the industries that 
are the prime movers and shakers in getting shoes to one's door um, is probably not a wise strategy. Let's talk some strategy real quick, though. Uh, go back and put your economist hat back on for just a second. There's some things this administration can do. They're looking at tariffs, but that's a political bomb because you don't want to be seen as soft on China. They're looking at regulation. They're looking at some other things like this, especially things like lumber, things like gas prices. What is it that they can do in these areas that would really help out? That is practical, not pie in the sky stuff, not waiting on Congress to get right. What's some things they could actually do now? So some concrete steps to improve the economy regard to drilling and allowing the streamlining the process to to ask for permits you can also look at the fda can can you know, loosen restrictions on some global trade and then also taking sort of very minor actions on things like housing reform which could really improve the sort of um, building of new infrastructure within local communities so for example currently the biden administration is now permitting new drilling on federal lands. They're also not approving or streamlining the process for drilling on offshore um, investment. Th those are things that the Biden administration could easily do tomorrow. The, the Trump administration was very active in allowing these sorts of permits to be streamlined through the process. The Biden administration has sort of hamstrung that um, once they took over. The FDA has um, loosen some of its restrictions. Do you remember when we had, uh, and we still actually do have, a, a baby formula shortage? So we had a, an issue where baby formula was off the shelves. It was very, very high priced. One of the reasons why this was a case was because the FDA actually prevents global trade in this market. The FDA has very, very stringent regulations on what can be put in baby formula, which is obviously it makes sense. We don't want to be giving infants anything that's going to poison them. But the restrictions made it so that there was no international market. And then the tariff quotas on those made it so that it was very difficult for a U.S. company to offshore its production. So that's one way in which a staple commodity for infants and young mothers could easily be made um, more affordable and I think really improve the quality of care for young people, very, very young people in this country. And then a, a third way is that, oh, and this is some, not something that the Biden administration could per se do, but there is ways in which the administration can signal that loosening regulations on zoning, loosening regulations on housing requirements. For instance, in California, if you're going to build a new house, you almost have to um, build in solar panels. You have to build in green energy requirements into that kind of building project that gets very expensive very quickly even with tax subsidies the kinds of environmental regulations and zoning requirements and environmental reviews can really increase the cost of of building new housing and that's another another staple commodity like rent the people always talk about that the rent is too darn high well one of the reasons why the rent is too darn high is because there's not enough housing and i think that um these are the sort of ways in which the Biden administration can really signal to the American public that it cares about staple, not sexy, not politically advantageous. You're not going to get a big win out of it on CNBC, but it will help the American people live in a in a more um, prosperous life. Yeah. Uh, he's Sean Michael Pigeon. He's joining us. We're talking some economics with him. We're going to continue to talk. We're going to talk more of the political side when we come back. Inflation, how the Biden administration is looking to kind of combat some of this stuff. We're also going to get back into the numbers, back to his piece. He talks about China. He talks a little bit about our economic need for presidential leadership in these areas. More with Sean Michael Pigeon right after this. 
Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Sean Michael Pigeon is joining us. Real sharp guy. Went to Yale. That's pretty cool. How are you, sir? Good to have you back after the break. Uh, good, to, good to be with you. Um, let's talk the political side of this. The Biden administration has come out and said that their plan going forward is that, and I'm quoting here from uh, Mike Allen at Axios, they plan to go on offense against Republicans' drumbeat about the rising prices by arguing the GOP has repeatedly sided with special interests. Um, look, they, the Biden administration just had about a week's worth of really good news on all fronts between the bill that they passed in Congress, Trump's having his problems, the search warrant stuff. They should be on a high now. Why in the world do you want to accentuate the one thing that you have not only probably the least amount of control over, but the thing that you really don't have a really good messaging for people because, and I'm going to phrase it to you this way, you tell me what you think. When it comes to talking about inflation, I think the White House comm shop does a really bad job here because you can't talk people out of what they're experiencing day to day, every day when they go to the store or go. And I think it goes to like the gas prices where it's like, well, if you're not taking the blame when they're going up, you don't get the credit when it comes back down. We understand that inflation at some point is going to top off and start easing back off. Hopefully it will now since we had a we had a non rise. But it's the same thing, isn't it? They didn't take they didn't take the blame or at least say, hey, this is why this is happening. Does it ring hollow now that they're going to try to get some credit out of this thing? I think that it particularly leans rings hollow when the Biden press secretary is out there telling the American people that we had a zero percent inflation in the last month, which I think is just blatantly untrue. But I do think that you're correct when you say that inflation is probably going to come down over the next few months. That is likely not because of the Biden administration's own policies, but rather because the Fed has increased interest rates and has signaled that they're willing to fight inflation along a number of, whether it's by scaling back their quantitative easing or by you know hiking, hiking the rates. So I think that there is, it is likely that inflation will go down. And so the Biden administration probably is wanting to take credit for that. I will say that given the the Inflation Reduction Act, which is a bit of a bit of a misnomer on that bill's name, um, it does make some political sense for the Biden administration to go out and start um, sort of touting their wins. But I don't know if the American people is going to ignore the kind of real issues that are hitting them on a day to day basis. You talked about it in your piece, the need for uh, bipartisan stuff on this thing. Let's be adults. We understand it's an election year, especially right now that uh, the Senate's in recess because they're all out campaigning. Congress is going to come back for about a week and a half, and then they're going to be campaigning. This is a campaign season, and five seconds after that, we're going to start the presidential election. So we understand the environment. However, is there some lanes here for some, you know, whether you agreed with it or not, if you told you in the spring they were going to do gun control legislation, you would have thought they were crazy, but that got done. If you would have told them they got the Build Back Mansion or Build Back Better or Inflation Reduction Act, whatever we're calling this thing, you didn't think that was going to get done, but it got done. And that wasn't bipartisan, but there is some things that could get done. Give us one or two. What do you think some things that practically they could do if there was a willpower to do it? I think if they had the willpower to do it, I think uh, a sensible thing for the Biden administration to do would be to um, stop giving out the strategic oil reserve and instead um, putting out some 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 new asking the OPEC countries to increase their oil production so that we can build that back up. I, I think that it is unlikely for the Biden administration to ever argue that we are going 
to increase domestic production, but they also could do it rather than through oil and oil and petroleum, but actually through natural gas. So we could increase our natural gas production. Um, I think that those are two things that the Biden administration could plausibly do is one, ask the OPEC countries to increase their um, production so we can build back our strategic oil supply and also sort of silently allow for more natural gas because that would actively help the um, economy and it would also decrease our carbon footprint. Both of those things I think could plausibly be sold to the American people. As I said earlier, I think that there is some room for infrastructure spending, particularly around housing, because that affects people both on the coasts and in the middle of the country. So I think that there could be some bipartisan legislation on um, boosting the lumber industry, uh, providing subsidies for um, for reforestation along with that. So some climate change um, sort of credits in there. I, I think that that could be a, a, a sort of a massive bill that includes a ton of of log rolling and <laughs> and and pork for for various places, but could probably be passed as well. I'm not sure I would necessarily even support though uh, a bill like that um, because it, it might contain so many handouts to special inter- interests and it might defeat the whole purpose in some ways. Yeah, Sean Michael Pitch and join us. All right, let's talk about something that is a heavy lift. But you talked about excessive regulation and crony favoritism in your piece. One of the places where excessive regulation is really hitting is right where we started this conversation, gas prices, oil prices. We haven't built oil refineries in decades in this country. Uh, We are not in a position to really pump up our liquefied natural gas, which is the shipping state that we would need to help out Europe to get them off Russia's natural gas because we need to build those port facilities, although we have a really nice one in Savannah that's being underutilized in some other places. This is stuff we could have been doing for decades, and yet we don't do it. And most of it is regulation. I understand environmental regulations and concerns like that, but 2020 technology is not 1970s technology when it comes to building a refinery or building a liquid natural gas processing places. Wouldn't we want this stuff with the new environmental technology, get it online, and we can do both things at once? That just seems like common sense to me. Yet, that excessive regulation you're talking about, it doesn't even seem plausible right now. I I completely agree. And I want to make one thing clear about regulation. And when we talk about regulation, we often, I think, imply that what's happening is that the government is saying no to things. That does happen. It is true that you can put in a permit for a new drilling site. The government says, no, we don't really want to do that. What is in some ways more more often the case and what can do just as much damage is for the government to just sit on it and for it to go through so many environmental reviews and then for it to go through public comment sessions and then for review after public comment and then another set of zoning requirements, public comment on zoning requirements, that it can basically set the project back two, three, four years. And at that point, it no longer becomes efficient for that company to even look into such a thing. Does that make sense? So the company can realize that, oh, this is going to take four years and hundreds of thousands of millions, perhaps even millions of dollars to go through this process. It's no longer viable for me to do so. So I'm going to go to a different something. I'm going to go, you know, increase my investment in green energies, or I'm going to increase my investment in a different area of Exxon's business like biofuels. So I think that what's happening is there's a lot of um, sort of self-selection where they're only investing in the most profitable refineries and the most profitable derricks, which is leaving a lot of really fertile ground on the table. 
I think it's a great point. This is a good way to wrap this up because this is where we started. The president gets too much blame and too much credit. We started off talking about regulation. How much of it is, though, and I'll just pose this as kind of an ending question to you. How much of the economy, though, and we don't think about it this way because we like to use the wonky terms and the buzzwords and there's a lot of data and charts and we can talk about all the fun trending stuff, right? How much of our economy really is just inertia? All that regulatory state, all that bureaucracy, like you were just talking about, it's not even like people, they just know they can't do it so they don't bother. That's a big factor in our economy and our economic policy that we don't ever really talk about, do we? We don't talk about it. We don't talk about the lack of dynamism. We don't talk about the fact that the velocity of money is decreasing over time. So velocity of money is is how how much time a dollar bill actually changes hands. And you can kind of measure how dynamic an economy is, how like, you know, whether money is moving, whether people are are going to different places. Um Americans are not moving as much as they used to. These are like like sort of indirect indicators that the economy is slowly becoming more and more inert over time. I think that it's a very good point. We don't talk about it very much. I would also, though, note there are some things that are outside the Biden administration or really any administration's ability to influence and things like geography, like the fact that almost all of our um, rare earth metals that are required for green energy is located in China. That's not something that's going to change. It's not going to change the fact that we have to ask for strip mining from China to get our lithium to create um, you know, our, our lithium ion batteries. That's not going to change overnight. There's no administration that can possibly do anything about that. But it is a reality that we must face. We don't get to say that, oh, the Biden administration can't do anything about it, but we're going to ignore the fact that it's a real problem. It is a real problem. And I think that, unfortunately, a lot of these issues aren't going to be summed up in a very fun graph. They aren't going to be summed up in a, a really cool soundbite that somebody on Twitter can repost. And we need to understand that governing sometimes takes behind the scenes work. It sometimes takes um, even a long-term view, like you said earlier, that multiple administrations are going to need to tackle this issue at at great length. Yeah. And that's why we talk to really smart people like Sean Michael Pigeon here, because he can explain it so good that even I can understand it because the economy is complicated and dynamic dynamicism. You need to go trademark that one real quick, get a website or something. That's a great word. Uh, Sean Michael Pigeon, great stuff today. Let folks know where they can follow you until we get you back on Hertel and they see you again. Uh, great. You can follow me uh, on Twitter at, at Pigeon underscore Sean. And you can also look for more of my work at youngvoices.org. Yep. The piece we're working off of is it's time to end the government's war on consumers. It's over at Town Hall. We will link to it in the show notes. Make sure you read that in its entirety. Sean Michael Pigeon, great stuff. My friend, we'll see you again soon. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. Thank you, sir. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played.
Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Our buddy Eric Garcia wrote a book on autism so good. It is Mrs. Donaldson approved. That'd be my mother, longtime special education teacher. Um, I actually want to start right there and talking a little bit about autism, though, because you were tweeting about it. And the reason I bring this up is because people are getting more open about talking about it for good, bad and indifferent. But we'll talk yes. about that in just a second. We're starting to get politicians being open about this. We're getting sports yeah. figures that are open about this. We're getting stars to be more open about this. We just talked mental health with our friend, Dr. Katie Gordon, and she talked about this as like, yeah, people kind of blow it off, but this is important stuff when people just start openly talking about it. Now that we're getting them into the political realm uh, and we can talk about uh, New York 10 and things like this, how do we need to approach it? as a society and as people that comment on it, because one of the things we bash about is the portrayals in media and in movies, politicians are portraying it too. And I don't mean that in a performative manner. I just mean they're, they're avatars and standard bearers for this stuff. Yes. How should we be approaching and covering them? Should we treat it any different? Should we treat it different? Because as you're a journalist, first and foremost, you know, there's not a style book guide to this stuff. We're writing it as we go. So how do we deal with it? There is, you're right. There is a set. There are some style book guys, so like the ASU's National Disabil- uh, Center on Disability Journalism, has a pretty good style book. But even then, there's still some things like, you know, how do we? The perfect example that I that I that I often use is, do you use person person with autism or autistic person, uh, person first versus identity first language, um, and the the answer is, you know, you ask. Um, you ask people what they what they say what they what they prefer. Uh, that that's very important. But I, but I think also it's one of those things where, um, you know, the the AP style book had a real uh, had a real row because there was a big question of how do you, you know they said you know use person first language. Well, that works for people with Down syndrome and that works for people with cerebral palsy and people with intellectual disabilities. But other people, you know, other people with groups of disability, like autistic people, blind people, deaf people, they, some of them prefer, you know, identity first language. So I think it's real, I think it's, I think, as you said, this is really difficult. And I think uh, to, to, I think it's difficult to shoehorn it into the older prescribed ideas of what journal, about how to write these things. And I think a lot of it depends on what people themselves say. One of the things that I was really adamant about when I was writing my book was, Asking, how do you want to be? How do you want to be referred? Do you want to be referred to as a person with autism? Do you want to be referred to as an autistic person? Uh, and that, and that's gonna that's gonna be something that I think journalists are gonna have to uh, adapt to. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. In the same way, I think. So you know, in um, in New York Ten, for example. So today, there's gonna be a primary uh, with Yuli New, who's running to. If she wins a primary, she'd be the likely the first openly autistic member of Congress. And one of the things that I think that's interesting is that she said, you know, you know, for the longest time we've talked about, you know, I think a lot of news outlets say, oh, people don't let their disability define them. Whereas she said, you know, it's very much shaped how she is. So that's a question about how do we use that language and how do we say, like, uh, you know, if people's disability defines them, we should say, like, I think that leads to the question without being rude. And that's a whole other thing. It's like, how does being a person with a disability shape you? How does it inform you? How does it inform you as a policymaker? You know, it's about, you know, and obviously this is all dependent on how comfortable they are talking about it. So this is a real, these are going to be some real questions that I, that I don't have a real clear answer to, but I'm still learning and I'm trying to figure it out as well. But that's the problem, isn't it? Because every case of autism or every case of Down syndrome or every case of whatever, pick your developmental disability sort of thing or uh, whatever somebody's struggling with, they're all different. 
and they yes. affect everybody a little bit differently. This isn't like um, some other things where you can just take a broad brush. So do we need the good congressman TV series to go with the good lawyer and the good doctor? That's the question <laughs> now, because that's because, you know, let's be honest. Our politicians are TV characters now. Yes, they are. They are. So I'm, I'm being a little facetious there, but that's probably what somebody's going to come up with next. It's like, oh, well, we need to have the good president or the good. And I'm not knocking it because I actually like the good doctor. I think it's a good show. Yeah. But I'm not sure that that's going to be a scalable thing where we need to do it four, five, six times. You were tweeting about this. I'll ask you because you're in that community. I'm not. How does it land with you with portrayals like that? Because I, I understand it's artistic, so it's subjective. Yeah, yeah. Is it in line of, oh, they're covering this good or they're exploiting it? That's a fine line. Where does it fall? It is a you? very fine line. I think the, the thing that I've always said is that, so as far as I could tell when I was running the book, I tried to see if they had any autistic advisors. They do have some people with disabilities advisors, but not specifically autistic. I've seen, so, you know, I, I've watched a few episodes of it. I haven't like, you know, it's not the, you know, it gets some things right. It gets some things wrong, I think. But I think more than anything, what I what I would like to see is <clears throat> more than just doing spinoffs of these shows. I think what I'd like to see is more stuff, more, more uh, material created by autistic creators. Or autistic screenwriters. I do know of some people in Los Angeles who do work in the who do work in the industry, and they really try hard to get their um, their material in front of an executive or in front of uh, in, in front of you know Netflix or HBO Max or whatever. And then you know forget the fact that a lot of these streaming services are cutting uh, right now. Uh, that's a whole other issue. But I think that one of the things that's difficult is creating an incentive for uh, for the entertainment industry to pick these things up and pick them up when they're created by people with disabilities. One of the, or when they're even in front of the camera, I think, you know, we saw this a little bit with CODA when it won the Academy Award for best picture. That was good, you know, uh, and from what I understand people, I know people in the deaf community have mixed opinions about it, but they were happy that it got the funding. It got the promotion from Apple. It got the promotion. It got like, it had a whole PR campaign what it's going to need, what, what this will need, what I think it's not just about picking up these shows. It's about will networks or will, you know, production companies, will they put the full force of their, you know, PR and promotion machine into promoting this and saying that this is content worth watching. you do with a reality show like love on the spectrum because i know the the family household out on the other day and i was i was just watching i was walking back and forth because i have an open house if this is just my opinion i'm not knocking anybody involved it just feels intrusive to me it's, stuff yeah. like that because it's interpersonal relationships i get it it's like oh they can have love like look i'm all for it again my mom was a special ed teacher i grew up surrounded by kids with what we now call autism they didn't know that back in the 80s yeah. so much uh kids with down syndrome and you got to understand how special education worked back then. My mom would have these kids in high school level for seven, eight, nine years, usually. So yes. you really developed a relationship yes. with these, you know, the Shane Cogers of the world who I can still hear his voice to this day, who's still alive, by the way, doing well. It feels invasive to me because I grew up in around those kinds of folks. 
and I knew them and they were my friends and I, you know, I love them and I care about them. That, that kind of stuff feels intrusive to me. I understand you want to portray them as just, Hey, they're, they're doing these normal it things feels like very falling Discovery in love. Channel-ish. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it, that one bothers me. How does it hit you? Yeah, so and I'm not watched, singling it out. I'm just saying. I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to single it out. I don't want to, you know. So I watched the Australian version. I still need to watch the American version. That's what they had I, on last night. The Aussie. So, one. the oh uh, yeah, the Aussie one. From what I understand, the American one is is better. Uh, from you know, you know, from what people I know and pe- autistic people who I know have watched and say that one, the American version is better. Um, the Aussie one felt really. I watched like five episodes of it, and it came out when out toward the end of me writing my book. And it felt really, I, I got the same feeling. You did. It, it felt real. I got really clammy watching it. It felt really like so, some of the, some of the couples are, and some of the people on that show are great. I don't want to knock them, you know, good for them. And, and I was really happy for them. Others, it just felt really like, I felt like, as, as you said, I felt like I was invading their privacy almost. And I was almost like, because it's one thing to give your consent because, you know, obviously all these people had to give their consent. But I don't know how I feel about like you can't once you give once you sign that waiver, the the production companies get licensed to do whatever they to clip and to, to clip and choose whatever they want, and so just giving a license of consent isn't necessarily doesn't necessarily mean that it's all honky dory, and I and there there were parts of it that I really just felt like should I be watching this. Is it appropriate? And not like it's explicit or anything like that, but it's just like it felt like there was some stuff that I wouldn't like about my life being broadcast. I don't know if I feel comfortable with, with, with that. That's just me. That's my argument against reality TV in general, by the way. So it, it, it's not me being inconsistent just because yes. it's folks with on the autism spectrum. It's like, look, you know my, you know my rule on Twitter about reality TV. Uh, those folks signed a contract, so they signed up for it. But that's part of what bothers me here. Is yes. when you start getting into these communities, and I don't want to denigrate anybody, I really don't. So no, I, I get what you're saying. Like, I I'm not sure we should really be pushing that kind of contracts on folks in that community in the first place, just as a general rule. But that's just me. That is so. I'll say this: when I was writing my book, um, I went to Marshall University in, in West Virginia, and there were college students. And one of the things that I did is I said, "I'm going to have you sign a waiver." Say you're okay with this. The thing that I the thing that I felt was that I felt that what I did is I I was very upfront with them. I said I'm autistic, uh, and I want to make sure that I get this right. So if I have any questions, I'll reach out to you because I didn't want to do that. And there were there was and there was another one another time there was another person who I interviewed not at Marshall but somewhere else. Uh, really important story that I really wanted to include in the book. But there was just something about the way, about the stuff that he told me about his personal life. And I just felt really, really like I made this phone call literally like days before I turned in the manuscript. And I said, I want to make sure you're okay with this because you have to live with this. I don't. And then he said, no, can you please take it out? And it sucked because I thought that his stuff was really important. But at the end of the day, he has to live with it. I don't. And I think that the difference is the difference is who's behind the camera. If you have people who've been through similar experiences or if you have autistic people who are advising or producing or things like that, that might lead to more sensitivity and recognition about like what's appropriate and what's not appropriate to show. 
And I think that that is where I feel kind of uncomfortable is that because if you don't have that cultural knowledge, then you might not know what's appropriate to include and what's not appropriate to. That's just my, that's just me. That's just me. It's one guy's opinion. I'm not saying, you know, I'm not saying that my word is gospel. I, th- I think it's a tough subject. One more thing on this autism stuff, because I thought we were done with this, but apparently not. They're going to keep going through it for folks that don't know, because I'm old enough to remember when we did this in the early 2000s, the late 90s, especially in the early 2000s. Right when the Internet came along, of course, that's when this yes. mess started. We've got to untangle autism from this vaccine mess. Yes, we've just got to because we're going to we're going to get people killed with this. Gonna- I, I, I usually try to be nonsense, but I've just had it with this. I, I've lost my patience now that we're seeing polio in New York. We uh, One of the greatest achievements in human history, literally one yes. of the greatest achievements in human history was defeating polio. Coming yes. up with the vaccine, and it was a mess. They accidentally put the live virus in. Eisenhower had to go on TV, one of the first TV addresses, and be like, no, the vaccine's safe. People don't understand what an achievement it was. We defeated polio. It was gone. And yes. now it's back out of our own ignorance, and we're using autism as an excuse to do it. I- I have no patience for this. You I speak am, on it. <laughs> if you, if, how, do you, how do you think I feel? <laughs> um, I am just so livid because this, 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 is, this, this, this is the real, okay, now you got me on my soapbox. This is the reason why I'm so, why it gets me so upset. Is because it treats autism as a problem and it treats autistic people as a problem to be fixed. And then what it does is it puts the blame on parents because what it says is it's your fault your child is autistic because you got got your kid the shots they put then place the blame on the doctors and we spend all this time blaming everybody for the kid being autistic when that does nothing to help autistic people in school that does nothing we're not spending we still do not have enough funding for home care there was this great series of articles i'm sure you saw me tweeting about it in the houston chronicle about the wait lists in texas for uh autistic parent for for autistic kids waiting to get their services through medicaid it does nothing uh to ameliorate the fact that people on ssi have to live in poverty it does we by focusing on this we're getting people killed because we're not focusing on polio and we are not actually focusing on autistic people's lives. And then we are, <clears throat> this is just, this is just, a, again, now you got me all hopped up. Um, it makes me mad because I think about this one kid I interviewed uh, now they're an adult, so I don't want to call them a kid, but they're, you know, uh, their name's Aaron Starr. Their mom uh, believed the horse hockey about vaccines and autism. And, their mom blamed themselves. Right. And instead of spending time focusing on how to help their kid live a fulfilling life, helping them make sure that they that they graduated from college and live a good life, all that, we spent all they spent all this time blaming themselves. It is just the most infuriating thing. And I, I I'm, you know, I it makes lasers shoot out of my eyes. So anyway, rant over. No, but that's why I think people need to hear the rant because what happens is parents are susceptible. Parenting yes. advice is a multi-billion dollar industry in America. It is. You, you've worked in media for a while now. 
they openly talk like, what are we going to do with the mom demographic? That's a thing yes. in media. It's absolutely yes. a thing. And to use it exploitively towards a group of people who have something that they didn't ask for, it's something that nature put in them. Yes. And to treat it like it's this disease to cure instead of something that we should be helping these people live with and become their best. I start thinking about you, you hit on one of my pet peeves right there. You talked about, you know, the SSI payments. You know, on one hand, we take away things like the sheltered workshop and giving them job skills. And on the other hand, we tell them like, oh, you can't work because you won't have your benefits anymore if you make money. This kind of double speak stuff, it all starts going together. It's like, oh, well, you this vaccine causes autism. Well, autism is this, that, and the other. Oh, you can't work. We'll put you on government benefits, but we're not going to give you enough benefit. There's a lot of just double speak when it comes to autism and disabilities in general in America. Yes. We've got to find some way to cut through the double speak. And some of it's because government bureaucracy that's built into the system. Yeah, I get yeah, that. yeah, exactly. But at some point, and that's why I loved your book so much, you just go talk to the people. You skip all the double speak. Yeah. And that's really the core of your, and I will pitch your book because it's that good, not just because you're Thank a friend. You. That's the double speak that really hurts people that are trying to live with disabilities instead of giving them a hand up. You're giving them a hand up while you're holding them on the top of the head at the same time. And that's yeah. just infuriating. That is, yeah, it is. The, the thing that I say a lot of times is that we, is that I cannot imagine, you know, so like I grew up in the 1990s when there wasn't a, when in some ways it was, it was the best of times and there was the worst of times because like it was great. It was bad because there was, I, I, I feel for my mom in a lot of ways because there just wasn't a lot of information at the time. But on the other hand, I'm also kind of grateful that we didn't have the internet because that means that my mom wasn't, uh, subjected to a lot of quackery. I think it's, I, I don't think I'm speaking out of term when I say that. And as a result, I think, it, so like, I don't envy any parent as soon as they get the, the autism diagnosis for their kid. I don't because they, because immediately, immediately they are subjected to a, to a deluge of misinformation and, uh and the right information wrong, and, and it's hard. I don't blame them for like not knowing what the right stuff to do is. I mean, I think you saw. I don't know if you saw that that stat news piece about like how a lot of private equity companies are getting involved in um, ABA, and like that's another thing because because now you have people are making money off something, and there's an incentive to shoot to pressure parents into doing that. So there is so there is so much misinformation and it is, it is it is endlessly frustrating because it doesn't actually address what they need you know they're there you, you know just, just last month i was at a conference with uh a bunch of non-speaking autistic people and their stories were all the same which was for the longest time they went through a bunch of different treatments a lot of different you know quote-unquote cures or a lot of different therapies and it wasn't until they got to you know speech speech communication or keypads or what or what have you that they decide that you know their lives overnight got better and but but you know it shouldn't take going through all those hoops to finally have the 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 Paul going through the, the desert in Damascus moment you know yeah and it's it's amazing that the technology is running so far ahead of the policy. We talked about this when we did the long form podcast, yes, one did. of the most listened ones we've ever had, by the way, well done on that. But that's because people want good information. They really do want the good information on this they stuff do. if you get it out there. But this is the thing is the technology has run so far ahead. 
and especially autism stuff, both uh, policy-wise and educational. We talked about it before. It really was organic and parent-driven because they just didn't have anywhere else to go. Yes. I, our, <laughs> our country deserves the government it gets, but these folks deserve a much better government than they're getting. And I'll just kind of leave yeah. it at that to end the rant on it. Eric Garcia, this is fantastic stuff. I could talk to you all day. That's why we have you back more and more. You do great work, my friend. Let folks know where they can follow you. Pitch the book. We're going to link to it. I'm going to send some stuff out on the book. Oh, we are not broken. He's going to hold it up because he knows how to do a segment because he's a media professional. Look at that. Yeah. There you go. If it you're watching now, on the YouTube. Go ahead, sir. Is, we're not broken. Change the autism conversation. It is now officially out on paperback. It has a new afterword about vaccines, stuff we were talking about, about the panic about it, how the, va how the autism vaccine panic gave rise to the coronavirus vaccine panic, uh, and so much more. It is uh, it is now available wherever you can get fine books, uh, and uh, and I always love coming back here because you actually know what you're talking about. You actually and you actually you actually take the time to do the work. So I always love I always love coming on here. I appreciate that. You steer me some other folks too, which I really appreciate. Um, love talking to you, my friend. The book is important. Uh, maybe the sequel on vaccines might want to kick that idea around. That'll sell to somebody. <laughs> Um, my friend, I appreciate you as a friend. I really appreciate the work you do. We'll do this again real, real soon, my friend. Eric Garcia, you're great, my friend. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, sir. All the music on Her Tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com.